Open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Surprise, surprise, we're back in Acts. All right. So uh, Acts chapter 2, and I've read through his whole sermon twice. And so I'm just going to begin tonight in uh, verse 22. Um, I got up to verse 23 last time, but that's the beginning of the section, and I'll cover that again. Uh, But as a reminder, as we are jumping back into Acts 2 tonight, since it's been a week, we are on the, the day of Pentecost, major religious feast, one of the three major ones in the life, the religious life of Israel, their calendar year. And this special Pentecost is the beginning of the church. There makes no mistake about it. This is when the church began. This whole new era, what we call the Messianic age, it began on this day. So this is an important sermon, and that's why I was taking time to walk through it. Because it's important that we see what's happening here. What, what is being announced. When, he, when, uh, when Peter begins his sermon saying, look, we're not drunk. This, this event that's happening here, where there's this huge noise. You all came because of it. And some of you are mocking, saying you're hearing all these languages. That you're declaring the mighty works of God by these uneducated Nazarenes, right? These followers of Jesus. Saying, you're, some of you mocking, you're saying we're drunk. We're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. Because matter of fact, this is not only the opposite of that, this is the arrival of the Spirit. This is the beginning of the new age, the last days. And that's why he went to Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. It's a prophecy about the end, the last age that the Jews understood. That was when the Messiah would be here. The, The arrival of the period when the Spirit would begin to be poured out. So that's what he's saying. He was declaring something about that day. But now in verses 22 on, he's shifting gears. And now he's saying, and by the way, it's the beginning of the Messianic age. Well, you're missing something. To have the Messianic age, you need a Messiah. And and remember, what is in the minds of the Jews who are standing there when they start hearing about this Jesus? What was their mindset? Oh, yeah, Jesus, he's the one. Was that what they're thinking? No, six weeks, seven weeks previous, he'd been crucified. I mean, six weeks. Fifty days, he'd been crucified before that. So they, in their minds, are like, how can your Jesus be the Messiah? This controversial figure, right? Public ministry. I mean, that's what he says. He was attested by God. So Peter, he starts to lay out how this Jesus could be the one. Because again, in their minds, well, how can he be the Messiah, this political Davidic figure, if he died? That's not what we're expecting. Matter of fact, how did he die? He was on a tree. Deuteronomy says, cursed is the one who dies on the tree. And Peter's saying, well, yes, actually, that's true. Matter of fact, let me tell you about that. So his whole sermon, after the introductory part, describing, hey, this is the beginning of the Messianic age, he starts to take time to go boom, 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 nailing down the proofs of why Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the one they'd missed. But that wasn't the end of the story. All right, so that's what we've walked through. That's kind of the stage that's being set here. And I'll just uh, start reading in uh, verse 22. So we're in Acts 2, starting in verse 22. He says, Men of Israel... Hear these words. Pay attention. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this wasn't done in secret, 
This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Collusion with Gentiles. Great. Good job. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus... God raised up, and of that we are all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So who is Peter saying is the Messiah? It's Jesus. Okay? He's, he's said it several times. And who's he indicting? You who crucified him. Okay? Remember, I told you, this is, this is no soft sell. He has thrown the punches. And he's being very clear about how this Jesus, the one they rejected, is indeed the true Messiah. All right, so the first thing he covers is, as he's, as he's talking and proclaiming Jesus, he talks about his death. All right, so he, he doesn't dodge the issue. Remember I talked about that? He doesn't try to sweep it under the rug. He highlights his death, saying, yeah, that death was, not only did it happen, it was necessary. It needed to happen. Actually, that's the second thing. The first thing he says is that you all know the powerful signs. Sorry, back up a little bit. Hey, he did his public ministry. You all know about it. Second thing is, yeah, he died, but it was a necessary death. Right? And so we talked about that last week, this explanation of, of, of his death. It was, God, it was God's plan. It was Jesus' appointed rejection by Israel. Isaiah 53 says it 700 years before. This servant that was going to be sent by God was going to be rejected by Israel. But it was supposed to happen to bear the iniquities of the people. So that was God's plan all along. And now he starts in verse 24. He's talking about God's power on display. How so? In the resurrection. So Jesus' resurrection is a demonstration of God's power. Because it says God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Man's plan? Kill this Jesus. I mean, what happened right after uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead in the book of John? It says that the religious leaders got together and said, we got to kill this guy. Oh, and we got to kill Lazarus too. 
Because it's better that one man die for the nation. Remember, he says that Caiaphas at that point was prophesying, saying that Jesus should die for the nation rather than we lose our place and our status. You know, the Romans come in and crush this rebellion. Man's plan, kill Jesus, put an end to him. And we see God's prophecy, we'll see that actually in the very next verse, in the next few verses, that that was actually God's prophecy that he would die. God's plan, this death is on purpose, it was necessary, it was not the end of Jesus, rather the beginning of forgiveness and new life. Now it's possible. God's power, death will not and cannot hold him down. God's proof about this Jesus is that he is the promised Jewish Messiah. And he is our hope of all mankind. I mean, look at what it says in Romans 6, 4, and 5. His death had to happen because it says spiritually, we were buried therefore with him by baptism in the death. He had to die so we could die with him. In order that, just as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So that death had to happen so life could come. We die with him so that we can walk in this newness of life with him. It had to happen. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. He is our hope and our confidence about our justification. It says so in Romans 4.25. He was delivered up for our trespasses, and then he was raised up for our justification. So his death and resurrection had to happen. And again, location, location, location. Where was he preaching this sermon? Come on, geography, come on. He's in Jerusalem. He's within walking distance of at least the temple. Jerusalem was a small city. He was maybe four to 600 yards away from Golgotha. Where's that? Where he died. And it was on the public crossroads. They were, it was done in public humiliation. It's not like we see in the movies where it seems like they walked way out of town. No, it was right outside the city walls. It was publicly done. And it was, everyone knew about it. And then, where was he buried? A short walk away, where? In a well-known tomb. Who was Joseph of Arimathea? That's why you need to know that when it says Joseph of Arimathea, he was part of the Sanhedrin. He was one of the most famous men in Israel. The Sanhedrin, you guys, I, I, when I preached this once, I said, it's like these guys were in Israel. They're like the ones who had baseball cards. They were that famous in Israel. Now, they didn't really have baseball cards, but you get the idea. Okay, if there was an ESPN for them, they would have been on it. The Sanhedrin were well-known, and he was rich. And it was a new tomb. It wasn't some obscure tomb. They knew exactly where the body should have been. But they walked to the tomb, and what's wrong with the tomb? It's empty. Publicly, it was known that it was empty. Now, there's rumors being circulated. Okay, the priest paid for it, you know, saying that the disciples stole the body. Well, if that's true, how come the disciples were still free and walking around? Hmm. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. But again, all they had to do is go see if the tomb was filled with a body or not. The resurrection is central to the apostolic message. It's essential to the gospel. I've had people who I've talked in the past said, oh, yeah, I believe, yeah, I believe in Jesus, and I, I like this Christianity thing. And I said, well, so what do you believe about Jesus? Oh, he was a great teacher and leader, and wow, look at the stuff he taught. And I said, yeah, do you know that he said he would rise from the dead, and he did? 
Like, well, I don't believe in that. Well, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you, you don't believe in half of the gospel message. Paul, when he was invited to go speak at the Areopagus, he's in Athens, he's preaching in the marketplace. A bunch of the philosophers heard him and invited him up. This is Acts chapter 17. Invited him up to Mars Hill or the Areopagus where there'd be debates. And he was invited up to talk because they wanted to hear more about this Jesus and the resurrection. Because that was Paul's message. Central to his message was the resurrection. They thought it was actually two different gods. But that's the deal. You have to believe in the resurrection. Romans 10.9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, God, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't have the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-5, Paul affirmed to the Corinthians that was central to the message. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to this word that I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain, meaning you didn't really believe it. For I delivered to you as of first or primary or ultimate importance what I also received from the Lord, that Christ died for our sins according with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then the twelve. And he goes on. The death and resurrection are central. It had to happen. It was, it's, it was part of the message all the way through. We'll see it in Acts. The perfect, righteous Jesus rose from the dead. And this is actually proof about Jesus being God because he said he would. It was his own prophecy about himself. Matthew 12, 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Wait, what did Peter just say in verse 24, how did, what were the, what was some of the things that uh, God showed that Jesus was attested publicly how? Miracles, wonders, and signs. He gave tons of signs. But for a final sign, he said, look, here's, I'll give you a sign. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it now except, what? The sign of the prophet Jonah. How many of you know the story of Jonah? It's good to know. It's out of the Old Testament. And he's, you should at least read that book. It's a short one. I think four or five chapters. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Did Jesus believe in the miraculous? Yeah, the supernatural? Yeah. So people try to explain away the book of Jonah. He wasn't really in a fish. It's, it's mythical. No, Jesus believed in it. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, buried. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's talking about himself. Later in Matthew 17, 22, he says this, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he'll be raised on the third day. Jesus prophesied exactly how he was going to be delivered up, exactly how he was going to die, and then exactly 
how he was going to be raised. It's central. And it proved he's God. <clears throat> Romans 1.4 is that this was actually God's declaration that Jesus is the Son of God. Romans 1.4 says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. How? By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's Jesus' vindication. He said he'd do it, and it happened. It's God's plan. It was God's plan all along to resurrect Jesus. As a matter of fact, now he goes to Psalm 16, and that's what Peter does in the very next verse. It's God's prophecy that there would be a resurrection, and it was prophesied by David himself. Who is the Messiah? What line was the Messiah supposed to come from? Yeah, from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, 2 Samuel 7. David himself makes a prophecy that is being applied to Jesus here in verse 25 through 28. It's a clear prophecy of a specific resurrection. So listen to this. Let's watch what he does here. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. This is David speaking here. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So here's the deal. This is prophetic proof from the Hebrew scriptures, from the hand of David in the book of Psalms. Someone in this passage is not going to be abandoned to death. That's what Hades is. Someone in this passage, okay? Peter's going to clarify this person in a moment, okay? Peter's explanation in the next part of the passage, verses 29 on, is what does he say about David? You can glance down real quick. David's dead. David's tomb, they have the tomb of David in the city of Jerusalem, and that's what he's referring to. He says, since there's a body in there and it's David's, this passage was actually David prophesying about someone else. That's his point. So his proof about the Messiah is right out of the Hebrew Scriptures. Talk about good exegesis. Well, he's doing it here. Peter's and the apostles and the early church's focused message is that Jesus is risen and it was prophesied Jesus would. Again, his credentials is he's from the line of David. Right? Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, the one promised. The proof was that Jesus' death was not only planned and necessary, but it was, it was a resurrection out of the dead as prophesied. And it was further proof to these listening crowds. Because remember, they're going, how can this be the one? When he, says, when he says in the passage, he says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. To be at the right hand is to be at the, at the, the position of authority and power. And that was David's hope, to be present and, and to have this, whoever this person is, to, that was there at the, at, at the right hand of God to provide counsel and assistance. David's joy in God as well as his descendant, the divine Messiah, was that the fact that the divine Messiah was at the right hand. This person had a special position. By the way, when Jesus ascended, where did it say he went? The right hand of the Father. Just pointing that out. David's hope in the death and resurrection of the Messiah King gave him great comfort and joy. Where he says that I may not be shaken, I was glad, I rejoiced, I'll hope. 
says that this person would not, would not have a, his soul abandoned to Hades. That means that there would be a death, right? Because if you're living, you're not in Hades. But here it's saying that, he, I would, that the soul would not be abandoned in Hades. So there is a death, but it's going to be temporary. He says, oh, or let your holy one see corruption. David's body did decay. Again, it was maybe quarter mile away from where they were standing and hearing this. Again, the city of Jerusalem is very small. And, and whether they're at the temple wall or they're further south near the city of Zion, they were maybe 200 yards from this actual tomb of David. And it really had a body, the body of David's. It corrupted, it decayed, so he was not talking about himself. David's rejoicing and gladness, it, it was about the future presence with God, but it, it was a spiritual presence because this was not talking about his physical body. Peter here takes Psalm 16 to its fullest sense because Jesus' body did not decay. His tomb was empty. The grave clothes, what happened to the grave clothes when they came, the women came? What did they see? Nicely folded. The grave clothes weren't gone, so the body wasn't stolen. The body was gone. So a tomb that they could point to, David's tomb, was full. It had a decayed body and probably decayed grave clothes. Jesus' tomb nearby that they could go to, an empty tomb, nicely folded grave clothes. He's, make, he's saying, look, Psalm 16 is pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus. He is the full and final fulfillment of Psalm 16. This is proof that Jesus is the one to whom the crowds should not only reconsider, but repent and believe. See, here's the deal. When he's pointing their, his finger at them and he's condemning them, is it a final ultimate judgment he's pronouncing on them? Actually, they have a chance to do what? To repent. We'll get to that. But don't forget that in this he's doing, he's hard hitting here. He's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the one, you rejected him. Jesus is the one, but you killed him. Jesus is the one, but you colluded with the Romans. What in the world? Your hated enemies, the Gentiles. Here's the righteous one, you rejected him. But you can repent and believe. And again, this is going to verses 29 through 32. He's pointing to a specific person. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Not only is it buried and his soul was in Hades or his body was in Hades, it decayed. So Psalm 16 didn't appoint it, wasn't pointing to him. Being therefore a prophet. Oh, he's calling David a prophet. Meaning Psalm 16 was going to be about someone in the future. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him. What is he referring to there? God's oath to David that he would have a descendant who would have an eternal throne. That's from 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13. It says then, that's exactly what it says here. When your days are fulfilled, God talking to David, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. 
this talked of an ultimate descendant. Was it talking about Solomon? Well, Solomon built the temple, but was Solomon the one who had an eternal throne? No, he died. He died. Psalm 132, verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. Jesus will reign on David's throne. That was what was promised. Where is he reigning now? At the right hand of the Father. But there is coming a time when Jesus said he would reign. If you read the Olivet Discourse, just before he was crucified, two days before, he went on the Mount of Olives, cross, and he delivered what we see in Matthew 24 and 25. It's also in Luke. He said he would come back and he would rule from Jerusalem. Well, where's David's throne? Jerusalem. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's reigning, but not literally on the throne yet. But again, he's pointing to the fact that this Jesus is the one. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, verse 30, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he explained the text. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And if you look at the book of Acts, oh my goodness, talk about bold, consistent, courageous, persevering proclamation of the risen Christ. It's there. It's all the way through the whole book. They never stop proclaiming the resurrection. But he doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He's referred to now to the life of Christ when he did all of these wonders and signs. Then he talked about the death of Christ. Then he talked about the resurrection of the Christ. And now he's going to talk about the ascension of the Christ in verse 33. And he says this, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. This event going on, all right, this event happening, you were drawn by this huge noise. You see all these people prophesying. Talk about an introduction to a sermon, right? We have to think up introductions to kind of make people say, hmm, well, they, he had it. <laughs> this supernatural just explosion, okay? It sounded like this hurricane wind. They come running and they see these people speaking in tongues. The spirits arrive. Because what you're seeing here is because he sent the Spirit. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. The exalted Christ. He's honored by God. What had the Jews done to this Jesus? Did they honor him? No, they humiliated him. This, this Jesus who's supposed to be glorified, they had gored. Think about what they did to him. Have you ever seen the Passion of the Christ? Um, if you read about descript descriptions from that time, Josephus talks of, of what happens when they get uh, the cat of nine tails. And we see it in the in this Passion of the Christ several years ago. It's very tame. Uh, Josephus says that you could see the person's kidneys and entrails from behind when their back was ripped apart. And that was just one of the things that happened to Jesus. He was beaten. Then he was crucified. So think about that. 
the Son of God, the one worshipped from all eternity, the one glorified, served by angels, the one who's, who was the agent of creation, and yet we rejected him? But now he's exalted. He's the exalted and reigning one. This resurrection by the power of God. And he's not only the exalted Christ, this part where it says that he's the one who sends the Spirit, he's the sending Christ. That it's, the picture is that Jesus received the reward for his victory. And the reward is the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who is sent. Because remember, the Jewish mind, they were waiting for the age of the Spirit. They were waiting for this time when the Spirit would be poured out and everything would be made new. I read you those passages from Isaiah and Ezekiel. And he promised that he would send the Spirit. In John 7, 39, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. He said, I'm going to send my Spirit. Matter of fact, I've got to go so the Spirit can come. But he's the one who sends it. Jesus was glorified. Jesus was exalted. Jesus received the Spirit. He sends the Spirit. Again, promised by the prophets. Promised by John the Baptist. Hey, one who's coming after me, he's mightier than I. Not even worthy to tie his dirty sandals. He's so mighty and powerful. He's going to baptize with what? With the Spirit and with fire. That's me, judgment. And Jesus again, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus is the exalted one. He's ascended and he sent the promised spirit. Again, this is, this is no... Uh, Jesus is being highlighted. He's not Jesus of Nazareth who was that lowly humiliated. He's the reigning one now. The one you rejected is the one who has actually caused this, this amazing event on the day of Pentecost. But he doesn't stop there. He goes to, to, this, to this amazing passage out of Psalm 110 uh, verse 1. And he shows that there's this Messiah who was to come actually is divine. This descendant of David is, is the Lord of David. That's what he does in verses 34 and 35. For David did not ascend to the heavens. Who, if David didn't ascend to the heavens, who's he talking about then? Jesus. But he himself, David, says this about this person he sees. The Lord said to my Lord. What? And in the Hebrew, it says, then, then Yahweh said to my Lord, what? It's a different word. So he's talking about two people. Were there ever two divine people in the Old Testament? Daniel 7, 13 and 14. Behold, I saw the ancient of days and someone like the Son of Man riding on the clouds of heaven. And he says that he was given an eternal kingdom and dominion. Oh, something's going on here. Something's going on. So David's referring to the ascension of Christ. David is a speaker. He's not the one who's seated at, at, next to the right hand of God the Father. He's seeing somebody up there, and he calls him my Lord. Jesus, he, he even used this passage when he was debating the Pharisees just before he was, before he was crucified. Because they had tried testing with three questions. Right To make him look bad publicly. He was on the Temple Mount. There's thousands of people. And they have this public confrontation. Because they're saying, who, what kind of, who do you think you are? What's this authority you claim? And they tried stumping him. 
the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and finally the lawyer who came. What's the greatest commandment? Jesus nails it. The lawyer says, oh, yeah, you're right. And then Jesus says to him, hey, you're not far from the kingdom. You get it. And then Jesus turns around and quotes Psalm 110.1. Well, who is this person then? And he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This is an important passage. Yahweh said to David's Lord, take this position of honor and authority, my right hand, and rule with me, and I'll subdue your enemies for you. Uh, What's promised in Psalm chapter 2? That God said he would subdue the enemies of the coming son, of the, the the one who is to be the prince, the ruler. Peter's saying that this passage refers to the great and promised descendant of David, who, though after David, is greater than David, because David calls him what? My Lord. That's just not how it happened back then. David was the greater because he came before, but not in this case. David recognized, no, this person's greater than I. And Peter says, this is who? This is Jesus. He's the Messiah. The ascended one that David saw and prophesied about. And in verse 36, we see this is, this is the grand conclusion of Peter's sermon here. He says, this is God's divine Messiah, rejected by Israel, recognized by God. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus. How many times has he said this Jesus in this sermon? Several times. This Jesus, the one that you rejected, God has made him Lord and Messiah. He is the one, the one you crucified. It's a pointed conclusion. Know for certain. And he says, all of you, the whole house of Israel, Were all of them the ones there in the crowd yelling for Jesus' crucifixion? Absolutely not. It was was a crowd, but it wasn't the whole crowd. I mean, again, they they estimate there was several million in Jerusalem at this time. They were not all at Jesus' trial, but there was a mob there. But because they didn't stand up and follow him, they got indicted. The religious leaders, the crowd that was there, represented Israel. They rejected him. Here he's proclaiming the victorious Jesus. The verdict of Israel was that Jesus was a defeated and cursed and rejected rabbi. The verdict of God is that Jesus is both Lord, the one that you must call on to be saved. Because remember, at the first part of his sermon, he quotes from Joel 2, 28 through 32. And what does it say at the end? That during the last days, you have to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Peter's saying that this is Jesus. He's the Lord that you must call on to be saved. That's his point here. He's both the Lord and Christ, the promised Messiah, the son of David who has an eternal reign. And he's condemning them for rejecting and murdering the Messiah, whom you crucified. Who are the ones who actually nailed him to the cross? The Romans. They're the ones who had the authority to do it, but the Jews were complicit As a matter of fact, we all were the ones. But who actually killed Jesus? God did. Isaiah 53 says so. It was God's will for him to die. And did Jesus go unwillingly? No. It was a plan all along. It was necessary. 
He's attested by God, proven by prophecy and an empty tomb, and proven by the arrival of the Spirit today. There's no escaping this verdict, (laughs) y'all. And the punishment rightly belongs on you all. So their original question is, how can this Jesus be the one? Peter answered in strongest fashion possible. How can he be? By the publicly attested mighty works of God through him while he was alive. By the planned and prophesied death. By the powerful and prophesied resurrection. By the ascension and his reign, this Christ who has sent the Spirit today. That's who Peter declares. This is why he is the one. Now Peter has caused their question to change, and we'll see that next week. But it goes from, how can he be the one, to, what must we do? What must we do to to escape our just condemnation and impending punishment? But again, folks, this question is for us all as well. There's a couple things about that. One, straight up, we have to hear this sermon. This is the Jesus who is presented as both Lord and God. There is no other way. And we'll see that all through the book of Acts. So if you haven't surrendered to the Lord Jesus, you need to. I need to. There's, there's only, that's, this, the whole, this, this is the one question that decides your eternity for all mankind. But the other side of this is for those of you who are Christians, is this your message to your friends and your family? Or do you play it safe because you don't want to ruffle feathers? When Thanksgiving got close, I started seeing a lot of memes on Facebook. Oh, there's two things you don't talk about when all the family's there, right? Politics and religion. Now, I'm not saying you, start a, uh, you stir up controversy just for fun. But folks, our message has to be very clear about this. This is the consistent message. Jesus is both Lord and God, and his resurrection proves it. And we have to just just focus in in our discussions. I've had many discussions with people of different religions, and they want to have all these different reasons. And I just keep going, but have have we studied Jesus yet? Let's talk about Jesus. Just talk about Jesus. And if they'll read, for instance, the Gospel of Mark with you, just read it with them. Let them say what they want to say and discuss, but get in the Word and then have them talk about Jesus. And I'm not talking about just the red letters, and I'm just saying this is a start. But here's the deal. Focusing on Jesus. All of history centers in on him. He he helped begin history. He's the agent of creation. He's the one who is in the very center of our calendar, right? 2,000 years ago, changed everything. But here's the deal. He's going to end history. We have to center in on Jesus. Just know what Jesus said and did. And don't back off on that. You'll hear hear all sorts of high-sounding arguments. Just keep getting back to Jesus. Proclaim him. The Lord, the one who said, I'm the only way. Jesus made that claim. Focus in on Jesus. But don't don't back off of that. So, so what? This is God's perfect plan that from before time, it included a death and a resurrection and an ascension. It's not defeat, but it's eternal victory. He's God's perfect man. This this supreme Christ we heard today from Andrew when he looked at Hebrews 4, he is the supreme one. He's not cursed and forgotten. Rather, he's the appointed one, the Messiah, the Savior, the King. But in all of this, don't forget, 
What was the reason for him being sent? You all know this passage, John 3, 16, for God so... Talk about motivation, right? God didn't leave us in, in, our, in the gutter. But for God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. Don't forget it. Don't forget that. It's a simple passage, but folks, wow, powerful. God's perfect love is on display in Jesus Christ. And we can't miss God's perfect call to salvation. The end of Joel's prophecy is that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He's the one. There's only one plan. Because of this perfect plan, God is worthy of our praise, is he not? He is always worthy. But on display, again, I, this sounds like, you know, we're just hammering this home. But folks, I, when I talk to people, so many, they don't know what the gospel is. The gospel is all about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it focuses in on him. Not just saying, oh, I believe he's king, but I, I believe it so much I actually live for him. And I want to obey him. And I want to make decisions that, make, that actually reflect that I want to live for him. And folks, that, that's got to dominate our church. But again, don't, don't miss this that, you know, I'm saying, hey, you got to do some point fingers at people, okay? Because I, you know, I can get that way and start doing this. But here's the deal. We can't back off on the message, but we got to be overflowing with the love, right? Because we look in the book of Acts, boy, talk about a joyful people. They weren't carrying signs, you're going to hell, right? They're loving people. They're being clear about their message, but they're loving people, all right? So I just pray that that would be us more and more right? You know, even Paul, when he was writing to the Thessalonian church, he said, man, you guys are amazing. You got a reputation in the whole country of Greece. It's just your reputation goes before you, just, but excel still more. May that be us, okay? As a church, let's be encouraged and exhorted to be that. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, do our, our prayer time. God, thank you for your word here. And God, I can't wait for next week when we get to see the results of your spirit at work. And actually, I can't wait for the rest of the book. It's just this history unfolds, this true story of the beginnings of the church and, and the, just the explosion of the gospel. And Lord, on this first day, thank you that we have a record of, of what you did. And Lord, I thank you for, for uh, just the bold proclamation of Peter. We, we get to see a transformation in this man from uh, a guy who basically was a chicken to being a bold preacher and proclaimer of you, the exalted Christ, on enemy territory in one sense, since you, you were killed right there. And yet he was not afraid to stand up and to proclaim the greatness of you, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that uh, individually in each one of our hearts and our lives, God, that we would set you apart as our Lord like, like uh, Pastor Lance is talking about in, in Peter, in Second Peter, that we are to set you aside as Lord with the, with the place of prominence and honor. And Lord, I pray that that would be true in, in how we make our daily decisions in private. And then Lord, as a church, may it be so clear that we worship the risen Savior, the returning one, the righteous one, the Redeemer, Lord, help us just to, uh, help that just to bleed out of us. So God, we thank you. We thank you for the work you began 2,000 years ago in the church, the beginning of the church, 
And may we be a faithful church that exhibits the same characteristics. So Lord, we love you and we thank you for our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, since we have-